I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Gadigal people of the Eonora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. My strength and my, my role in, in this weird world is to try and, and, and tell some stories about, about people doing good things in wine. Ultimately, um, you know, ultimately, I, I love what's in the bottle, but I'm, I'm probably even more interested um, in how it got there. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Nick Ryan is an extremely well-spoken and authoritative voice of the Australian wine industry. Writer, judge, presenter and communicator, Nick is a self-employed and self-effacing career journalist. He also happens to have some of the best bed hair in the business. Hi, Nick. Thanks for joining me. Best intro ever. <laughs> and it's all the truth. Yeah, yeah, you should see it this morning. It's, um, it's particularly dishevelled. Lucky this is not a video, blo- you know, video podcast. Not at all. I, I'd be thrilled to see it. You know, you must make so many people je- jealous because I know there's a lot of men out there that really just wish they had a little bit more on top and <laughs> you're just killing it at life, aren't you? I wrote a newspaper column once about I think you know, I have more straight men talk about my hair than just about any other fellow on the planet. But, you know, I have a lot of physical failings, but going bald's not going to be one of them. <laughs> no, I think it's pretty awesome. And uh, you know what? If, if they're a little jealous, then uh, best be it. Oh, well. Well, that's it. I could, you know, that's it. Well, you know, the only thing is it's just my head's too big to wear trucker caps. So I need, I need, <laughs> I need to have the hair. <laughs> well, you wear it well. Nick, tell me about, do you have a first memory of wine or the first time you were ever kind of aware of, you know, grapes crushed in that go into a, a bottle? Yeah, look. Look, I do, and it, and it sounds utterly pretentious, but it's a lot more down to earth in reality. Uh, look, my parents, my dad always liked wine. You know, he was just a country town lawyer, but um, you know, always had a you know an interest in wine, and and there was wine on the table. You know, as a as a kid growing up, and we grew up in sort of country South Australia, sort of on the edge of the desert, but I still remember coming to the Clare Valley as a, as a kid on sort of weekend where Dad would drive around and, and fill up the boot with wine and fill up himself probably just as much. Um, but the actual – and I, 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 I say this story quite often and, and every time I tell it I'm quite amazed, but the first wine I ever really remember tasting is Shadowy Chem. And only, only because um, my parents used to share a half bottle of it every year on their wedding anniversary. You know, this is back in the 70s. It, it still was a pretty pricey bottle of wine then, but it wasn't what it is now. But that was just their, their you know, the, how they would mark their wedding anniversary every year. And I think one year a babysitter bailed on them at the last minute probably knowing what they were getting into. And so mum and dad ended up having dinner at home and not going out, but still opened that little half bottle. And, and, and I remember dad saying, here, try this. And I remember thinking that is something quite spectacular. So, you know, it, it's it's all been downhill since there pretty much. I can imagine, though, to, you know, a, a adolescent or a child's palate, though, 
just the magic of what that would have tasted like, you know? It would have been right up your alley. That's certainly the wine to hook you at that age. Well, yeah, like it just, it just blew the top of my head off, really. I mean, you know, you used to, you know, as a, as a you know, I must have been, I think, seven or eight, you used at that age to, you know, sweetness and, and, you know, that is what your palate responds to. But, you know, that was something on a, on a whole nother level. So, you know, and then I just sort of started, you know, trying to smell what dad had on the table at, at dinner and, and, and that sort of thing. And then, you know, sort of always had a, a vague interest in it and one day fell into it as a profession. You know, actually, um, Julia Child and Paul Child, they used to drink a half bodily cam on all of their anniversaries too. So your parents were in very good company. Well, they are a very good company. My mother's a better cook than Julia Child. <laughs> I love that. That's such I'll say commitment. that. I know. I know. Oh, yeah. No, she'll be, she'll be the first person to listen to this when it comes out. So I thought I might as well get that in now. Perfect. All the brownie points. I love it. Well, hi, mom out there. <laughs> now, tell me a little bit about how you ruffled feathers at Adelaide University. Um, well, but not really going. Um, I, yeah, look, when I was at, you know, finished school, fell into university, had a very good time, but not much of it inside a, a lecture theatre. So I am, um, as an indication of how fundamentally lazy I was, I ended up getting thrown out of an arts degree for actually just not going enough. So that is something quite spectacular to be able to achieve. Um, but it's just, it's just, it's just the way it happens. So, I remember getting this, um, you know, a certified letter arrive in the mail. I was living in my sort of first share house at the time, and thinking, oh, what's this? And I went, ah, well, it's a letter basically from the university saying, look, there are other people that would like to come here, and don't you think you're holding up a, a, a space for someone who might actually turn up? So, how about you bugger off? And I went, okay, I will. Um, and and move to Sydney. Lecture theatres are pretty hard to, to to sit through, though, aren't they? When you think about some of the hours and just that that one person standing in front of a whiteboard. I mean, kill me now. Well, look, I think I was probably looking for any excuse to not go. I would, I would, I would drive to university, and if I couldn't get a park within sort of fifty metres of the front gate, I'd go. Oh, it's too hard, and go home. Uh, so, you know, it was, I wasn't exactly the most motivated, you know, 19, 20 year old, I must admit, you know, I was, my interests were elsewhere. So what did you do then? What, what was the next step after you thought uni's not for you? What, what to then? Yeah. Look, so I, um, I, I moved to Sydney, uh, you know, a couple of mates were doing it and I went, you know what, I'm going to go and, and do that too. And it was actually, this is sort of where the wine thing happens because, we, all three of us, got a dodgy share house in, in Woolloomooloo down at the bottom of Burke Street in Woolloomooloo. Um, when, you know, even before the, you know, the development of the wharves and things, when they were all still abandoned and, and, you know, the kind of place where you'd wake up one morning and there'd be a pair of hobo jocks set aflame on your front doorstep. We actually, that actually happened one morning. There was a pair of ignited hobo jocks burning on our front doorstep every cat in the inner eastern suburbs of Adelaide decided to come and crap in the little back courtyard behind our, our little terrace house so I um I needed to get a job to pay the rent on that hovel and I saw an ad in a in the 
in the Herald, you know, back in those days when you read the classified ads in the paper looking for work, asking for someone to work at a place called Crundle Cellars up in Brown Street, Kings Cross. So I went up there, applied for the job, went in, sat down in Jeffrey Crundle's famous back office. I was actually only last week down in um, Tasmania, Joe Hollyman's place, plunging some Pinot ferments and things. And another old mate of ours, Matt Lowe, who was another wine rep. Joe was a rep for negotiations in those days and, and Matt was a rep for Fesk and Company, having both done the wine marketing course at Roseworthy. Um, and we became friends because I was hanging out in the shop and they were they were sort of hanging out around the shop waiting for – there used to be this succession of reps that would come in to see Jeffrey in his back office all – slightly shaking and pale because they knew they were about to get a bollocking from grumpy old Jeffrey Crundle. But so I went for the job interview. Part of the job interview was he said, can you name seven great varieties? And I did. And he went, well, I've just spoken to 17 other blokes and they couldn't do that. So you've got the job. And, you know, I, I don't think that was it because I had a particular, you know, interest in wine. I wasn't buying wine magazines or, or anything like that. I went for the job, A, to pay rent, B, because I thought I could get cheap beer. But, um, yeah, I think it was that, that growing up in Adelaide thing, that sort of wine gets into your skin through osmosis. You're surrounded by it in Adelaide, unlike any other city in the country, I think. And, and, and you know, I went to a school in Adelaide run by, you know, Jesuit priests. So they've got the Seven Hill Winery in Clare. Our year eight excursion was to the Seven Hill Winery. So there's 90 old, <laughs> 90 boys. Yeah, the tour was a tour of the old cemetery, a tour of the old boarding house building, and then Brother John May took us through the winery, gave us all obviously a dry lesson on, on, on winemaking and then the science behind fermentation and um, – and then we had to go to mass, and then we got a tour of the crypt underneath the <laughs> underneath the church where all the old Jesuits are buried, including the one open slot that was there waiting for Brother John. And he pointed out and said, "Oh, that one's waiting for me." And just like freaked the shit out of us all. Um, but <laughs> he, he's in there now, dear Brother John. But that that must have had some kind of influence that excursion because years later I was judging the Adelaide Hills Wine Show and there were six judges and four of us had all gone to school together. So <laughs> it was me, David Lemire, that Sean Smith, Matt Pick, who's now at Sepultsfield, and Tara Sakota. So, you know, <laughs> so four of the six judges have all, had all been through that that school excursion experience. So there was obviously some some resonance there. Yes, for the dark side, obviously, a dry wine excursion and then a crypt. <laughs> yeah, turned us all into, yeah, just sparked the interest and turned us all into booze hounds. <laughs> and tell me about when you're working at the cellars and talking about that back office, were you tasting wines? You know, what was that kind of experience of getting into that like? I still, I still remember quite clearly Jeffrey telling me, he said, oh, yeah, you work for me and if you want to make, you know, wine a career, and at the time I didn't, but he said, if you want to make wine a career, you'll get a job anywhere in Sydney because, you know, because you've worked here. And I thought that meant that, you know, I was going to get this amazing training. What it really meant was Jeffrey was notoriously the biggest asshole in the Sydney wine trade and anyone who thought if you could last there, you could work anywhere. Like, I am... Um, the number of people I saw getting sacked while I worked um, with Jeffrey, he often would have hired 
English backpackers who I remember him telling one guy, he was showing him around the shop one morning, showing him how it all worked on his first day at work. And Jeffrey just turned to him and said, um, you have the worst effing breath I've ever smelt in my life. If you don't make an appointment for the dentist, I'll make it for you. Guy just looks there, sort of shattered and stunned, and half an hour later he goes to take his lunch break, and we we never see him again. So Jeffrey Jeffrey was notorious, and there'll be a lot of people, you know, if there are uh, people of older generations who listen to podcasts who, who will remember Jeffrey. In fact, the the, the Pino Trophy at the Sydney um, Royal Wine Show is the Jeffrey Crundle. Um, trophy for the best Pinot and I was working for him around the time that he first decided to um, sponsor that and it, it's remarkable to think that you know, in the space of my career in wine so we're talking about 94, 95 here when he um, there wasn't a trophy for the best Pinot at the show for a start he then sponsors it the first two years he sponsored it they didn't award a trophy for the best Pinot and he was getting really frustrated because all he wanted to do was floor stack the crap out of it in the shop and say, hey, everyone, look at my Jeffrey Crundle trophy winning Pinot Noir. So he was getting really frustrated that they wouldn't award the trophy. So within the first year that they did award the trophy, they awarded it to a wine from Cellar Masters that he couldn't sell anyway. So I think he was even more <laughs> frustrated. <laughs> But, no wonder he's um, a cranky guy. <laughs> yeah, but he did. He, 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 I, I learned to taste. He would do a thing like every second Thursday afternoon or something out the back. So this shop was an old warehouse in Brougham Street, just back off Victoria Street and across. It's that first street, runs parallel to Victoria Street, first street sort of heading down the hill. And it was an old warehouse and, you know, pretty basic place. And he would just like floor stack boxes of wine and it was you know, really no frills retailing but and you'd have a table of samples out the back and there were a couple of old um veterans of the sydney wine trade sort of old um distributors and reps it was you know i think frank zvardavin and um ian hunt were old mates of jeffrey's and they would come and i'd be allowed to taste with them and they would just taste through a bunch of samples looking for anything good and i just sort of was never asked what I thought, really. Occasionally, Frank or Ian would, would, would have a look and say, what do you think? But um, that was sort of when I first started thinking about, you know, that, that sort of critical tasting process when you're not just pouring it and trying to get it down your gullet, but you're actually trying to assess what's in the glass. And then from there, I, you know, I went to work for Ian Cook at, at Five Ways, and that's when, it, you know, that's when everything changed for me. That's when it became kind of serious because Cookie took that to a whole another level and every day would open something and shove it under your nose and go, all right, what's that? Talk to me about that. So that's when I really started. Now, that's when the floor, you know, gave way under my feet and I, I, I dropped into this into this wine world that I've um, never really wanted to escape since. <laughs> Nicely said. Tell me, what what was the, some of the teachings that you – most remember from Ian Cook? Like if you were to take away a couple of things, which I'm sure you took more than that, but what are the main things that you really are thankful for? Um, uh, thankful for a lot of things from Cookie. One, one uh, uh, exposure to, to great Italian wine. I mean, that was Ian's um, real passion with the wines of, wines of Italy. So, you know, I, I from there, 
you know, from a very low base suddenly built um, an understanding and, and love of, of great Italian wines. But um, Cookie was always about just, you know, think clearly, um, think deeply about what's in your glass and, and, and just always look for for quality and whatever those, you know, parameters are, um, and they, they will change from wine to wine, but, you know, is that wine you're looking at, you know, a great example of, of that variety, that region, that style? And I think a lot of that was the shop's tiny. It hasn't changed since 1995 <laughs> when I was there. He rang me a couple of years ago, I think, to say he had ripped up the carpet and he was putting new carpet in, which as far as I know is about the only work that's been done on the place since. So there was a lot of broken bottles that I was responsible for in that old carpet. But the, the great thing about that then was it, it really did require all of us to be very selective in what came into the shop. So every wine that was on a shelf had beaten 10, 15 other wines to get that spot on the shelf. Yeah, we couldn't buy everything because we just didn't have space for it. So, you know, you had to be really critical in your assessments and you have to go, well, is this, you know, if we're going to have a $25, you know, Riesling, you know, in this spot in the fridge, well, it's got to be the best $25 Riesling we can find. If, you know, if we've got only space for, you know, a couple of, things from coat roti well it's got to be the best coat roti we can we can find so i think that was really useful and you know what and it was i started to to see that if you took it seriously um you you worked hard at it people would you know, doors sort of opened up to you. I, I remember going to sort of tastings. Like Jeffrey would never send me off to a tasting, but Ian did. And I would go to tastings and have a little name badge on. It would say, you know, Nick Ryan, five-way sellers. And no one knew who the hell Nick Ryan was, but they knew what five-way sellers was. So you know, that meant that you know, the people would, when they're standing there pouring the other side of the table, they'd, they'd, they'd take the time to, to talk to you about what, you know, they were pouring for you or something might come out from underneath the table that because you were from five-way sellers and, you know, you get to see that. So it just, you know, it really did just show me that um, work hard at it, do it well and, and you know, you earn some respect and, and things really do open up for you. I think that, you know, a lot of people don't appreciate the importance of independent retailers and just those neighbourhood institutions, and and it's it's sad because you, you're seeing them disappear, and there's a BWS on every or every corner, and um, it's hard for them to stay in business. But man, they really can have an impression on 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 the towns and the the suburbs. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely, and and do you know what, I I I probably think the happiest I've ever been in wine was sort of working in that shop. I um. Oh, yeah, I loved that, you know, daily interaction with people. Um, and, and we, you know, we were a small shop in Paddington, tight little community, and we would we would taste wines out the back. We'd have, a, you know, a winemaker with us or a rep who was showing us new releases, and we'd taste the wine and we'd go, oh, you know who's going to love that? You know, Bob Jones is going to love that. So the next time Bob Jones comes into the shop, goes to buy, you know, what he's been buying Recently, we go, no, no, you're not having that. You're having this 
tonight because we tasted this, we bought this because it's right, you know, in your wheelhouse. And, you know, that was, you know, I used to love doing that. And then, you know, we had we had some, you know, some great customers who were, um, you know, had great sellers um, and often we would, you know, be at work and, and there'd be someone who'd come in and go, look, here's this, um, you know, here's this 1972 Grand Eshazo, you know, I opened last night with dinner and, you know, saved a little bit for you guys to try. Um, and that, you know, that sort of stuff was, it's, you know, it's, it's wine university, you know, it's like the MBA of, <laughs> of, of, of on-the-job wine studies. We yeah, really got to see some really great stuff from some really knowledgeable people. And it's also how I started getting into the writing thing as well because Cookie had a had a newsletter that used to get letter-dropped around Paddington and mailed out to a mailing list. You know, this is how old I am and how old school this is, that we would write up on a, on, you know, as word, a bunch of Word documents saved to a floppy disk and take to a printer, a printing business in Bondi Junction to be printed out, um, you know, 10, 12 pages, and then we would mail it out and letterbox um, a, a regular newsletter. And, and I started writing that for, for Ian. And then there were a few guys, you know, around patents and regular customers who were – um, media types, you know, some you know, journalists and newspaper editors and things, and a couple of them were sort of coming in and saying, "Who's writing this stuff?" And I sort of tentatively put my hand up and said, "Oh, it's me." And they went, "Well, it's actually pretty good." Um, so yeah, that that sort of gave me the confidence that maybe maybe there might be something in this. And I always like at the shop we always. Um, thought it was important to, to follow um, who was who was significant in a wine writing community and pretty so yeah I would open the shop on a Saturday morning and my first half an hour of a Saturday morning would be sit down and have my coffee back in those days I was occasionally smoking a cigarette too so I'd sit on a milk crate smoke a dairy drink my coffee out the front of the shop grab the papers, grab the Australian and the Sydney Morning Herald, um, look at what Hewan had written up in the Herald, look at what Halliday had written up in the Australian, and then if we had those wines in stock, go out and get them, stack them at sort of at the front of the shop because we knew people would be coming in to buy those wines based on a good Hewan review or a good good Halliday review. So that was, that was always the routine and the first part of a, Saturday morning was to be ready for the people that would come in with the paper in hand, and then especially on on, on days you know on the, the sort of once a year when there was like a holiday um, top one hundred or a, you know Hewan would write something on wine, his wines of the year. Yeah, you know, we'd know we'd get we'd get people coming in with the paper in hand wanting to wanting to buy those wines. So started to think maybe there was something in this in this wine writing caper mm-hmm. after all. Tell me about how you how did you go about finding your own writing voice? Um, yeah, look it's 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 important to do that. Um, and I think it it's just gotta come out of you and I think you've just got 
to be honest enough with yourself that you can do it and confident enough that it's it's worth coming out like, there's there's no there's nothing more boring than trying to see you know a facsimile of, of someone else's style but under a different name um, and so I think you've just got to be a little bit bold and every now and then you'll you know you'll 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 misstep and you'll look back on something and go Jesus why did I say that or but you've got to, you've got to, you've got to stumble in those directions to find the right path I think you'll 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 eventually get there and I think that's why um, you know often you know when you're starting out as 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 a in a, a writer of, of any kind, but you know, so write say writing that one. When there are very you know few opportunities to really get your voice out there, and often you do a lot of um, someone says, "Oh, could you write a website for me?" or "Can you do some copywriting for me?" And then we've all done that sort of starting out. And I found I found that stuff really hard trying to write in someone else's tone and, and, and voice and become less and less interested in, in anything like that and thinking, look, it's just this is me, this is what you know, my voice and I think I just have to be true to that. I think you taper it a little bit for publications. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to write slightly differently for the world of fine wine to the way I'm going to write for Country Style magazine. Um, you know, and, and that's just you've got to always be aware of your audience and you hope that you've got the capacity to, you know, to, to cover off all those different perspectives. But at its essence, it still has to be your voice that's coming through. Yeah, and I mean, talking about missteps, or was there any hiccups along the way where that you can think of specifically where you thought, yep, I've learnt from that. I'm not going to do that again. Um, yeah, look, oh, there's, there's, there's still stuff that happens <laughs> more recently than you would hope. And I, you know, recent column for um, the world of fine wine, I actually just talked about matching crushes when I actually meant matching presses, and it was just you know, here's a, here's a little trip, uh, yeah, trick for well, tip for young players. Do as I say, not as I do, and don't always leave yourself right up to that last minute and like riding in a mad rush before deadline because it really does help to go back over everything you've written, polish it, check it, refine it. Um, and I, I still, uh, having been you know, doing this for 20-odd years, I still don't do that enough. I am... Um, a terrible procrastinator. I am someone that needs to feel the hot breath of a deadline on my neck to really get stuff going. So, you know, I um, I probably should give myself false deadlines just so I do give myself some time just to go back over those sorts of things and, and, and not let little um, brain farts like that get through. But um, I think that that would be my, my one big bit of advice. <laughs> well, it is really good advice and, and it's amazing how when you, you think you read something, you proof it and it looks great and then you come back and you go, 
what jumble is that when you've got a fresh set of eyes and you've given yourself a moment? So I can completely understand. (laughs) Um, So from somebody that's a procrastinator and then kind of didn't show up for class, you've been self-employed for decades now. (laughs) It's bizarre, isn't it? (laughs) It is. and I'm impressed. Run me through a great day in the life of Nick Ryan, like a a stellar day in your work life. What does that look like? Um, Look, the thing that when I first started doing this and the thing that really, you know, I always thought I feared that I'd be that guy that, you know, gets up and still in a bathrobe at two o'clock in the afternoon and, um, you know, that sort of bad working habits. But when I first started doing it, you know, my partner at the time was having to get up and go to work every morning and, like, my life wasn't worth living if I was still in bed when she was leaving the house to go to work. She was supporting this bizarre idea that I had that I was just going to be a freelance wine writer, but that meant get up, get off your ass, get started by the time I'm leaving the house. Otherwise, I will, you know, you'll be miserable for the rest of the week. So, at least I just got into the habit then of just getting up, starting the day, making a coffee, sitting at the desk. I might spend an hour looking at, you know, reading music reviews on Pitchfork or, you know, looking at Twitter or, or that kind of thing. But I'm, I'm at least there. I'm dressed. I'm sort of ready to start a day. Um, and, and a good day is a day where it it just it, it flows. You know, you can feel the, you know, the electrical storm in the head that's making it all it all happen. And I think, you yeah, you'd like that day to be every day, but it's not. And I think sometimes you have to accept the days when it's not happening. Um, and on those days. You either get up and, and walk away from it or you just try and plod through. You just get something done. You try and advance, try and progress. And it won't be the best writing you do that week, but it's still something. You've, you've, you've progressed. And then you can go back and you can, when it's working better, you can, you know, polish it up again. But so, you know, a good day, yeah, a good day is a day that, you know, I'll taste a bit. I'll find some really, you know, inspiring wines, um, you know, and I'll bash out a thousand decent words, and you know, and and that feeling at the end of that day is great, and it is kind of why I do this. I explain to people it's a bit like having homework every day for the rest of your life, and you know, there are teachers of mine at school that would just laugh heartily in my face to think that I made a living now on having to hit deadlines. Um, so I think that's, um, that feeling though, when you send something off that you're happy with, and then you can sort of get up from the desk and go pour yourself a drink and, and just feel really sort of satisfied that you've done some good work. I think that's, that's why we do it. I mean, that's, that's the the nourishment you need from from what can be a fairly painful process sometimes. Definitely. When you're stuck in, in your own head too, sometimes it can be um, tor- torturous. Yeah, absolutely. And we, yeah, and, you know, we all tend to work in isolation. You know, I'm, I'm here 15 minutes out of Claire between two sort of, 
little hilly ranges of, you know, and, you know, surrounded by paddocks and I can stay here for a week without really going into town and that can be that can be kind of isolating and, and, and dangerous sometimes as well. So I think you need to you need to be kind to yourself. You need to be ready to to make hay when the when the intellectual sun is shining and you also need to know that you know there are times when it's not going to work and, and, and that's okay as well. Don't beat yourself up for that. I want to get stuck into some nitty-gritty because you're always somebody that's never kind of shied away from from maybe some of the harder conversations, I think. So, and I'm going to, you know, try to extract everything I possibly can and <laughs> bleed you dry during this <laughs> next few moments. <laughs> For what it's worth, for what it's worth. <laughs> How do you juggle professional relationships and then an honest opinion when it kind of comes to wine reviews? Yeah, look, I think that's a that's a, a great question. And, you know, some of my best friends in the world are people whose, you know, wines I, I, I look at professionally as well. Like I said, I just spent last week with Joe Holliman, um, you know, just went down there for a couple of days, helping out in the winery. You know, Joe's one of my you know, nearest and dearest friends, and has been for a, a long time. Um, and and I don't think you can necessarily disassociate yourself from that, but I think you can actually then use that as well. And that, yeah, I don't I don't push his wine for you know. Say I've got one spot. To write about a, a a Pinot, if you know, if there's a Pinot I like more than Joe's, I, I, I you know, that gets that spot. But if I am writing about Joe's, I think I can understand it in a in a in a different way. That that sort of when you know the people behind the wine, I think you can see those people in the wine, and it is it, it's the nature of of wine writing in a in a small market sort of like Australia is that we all do see each other, you know, a lot. And I think the reason I'm writing about wine for a living is I like wine people. I think there's there's something about people who dedicate their lives um, to this to this pursuit that, um, that I connect with and that I respond to. So... I'm always going to have good friends in the wine industry, and then that's um, if if you were if you were to try if I was to try and say, well, I can't write about you know wines that my friends make, I would be missing a whole bunch of really interesting wines, and it's not necessarily about me; it's about who ends up reading it, and you know, I think, you know, the readers probably need to know about these wines as much as anyone else. So you don't, you don't, you don't unnecessarily favour the wines made by, by people you're close to, but you certainly don't punish them for, you know, for the misfortune of being your mate as well. Yeah, it does sound like just being fair to all parties involved, really. Well, yeah, and then, then you know, when, you know, you, You'll taste blind, you know, often if I am looking at, um, you know, a bunch of wines looking for something to, to fill a hole somewhere, you know, you'll taste those blind and 
then, you know, make your first run of assessments and then, you know, you do that second run of assessments when, when you've revealed them as well. And, um, you know, hopefully those, they line up, but you, you, you tend to go with your, you know, your blind assessments first. Um, but then you think, well, if, you know, if they if they do line up, then you go, well, okay, now I can write something quite insightful that probably no one else could write about this particular wine because of the insight into that person that I have. Um, I adore your writing for Australia Wine Business Magazine. It's just the sheer honesty, the humour, the commitment to cause. I'm in love. How do you take on criticism and or judgment about your writing how do you because it's it's arguably it's always going to come your way and how do you develop that kind of second skin um oh, look um you get big enough old enough fat enough hairy enough to to, to not really care and you kind of say that like everyone cares like you can't you know you put a lot of time and effort into it um you know a lot of the time it's putting your heart and soul on the page if someone says well that's shit well you know that that that's always gonna hurt but uh, you, you just kind of go look you can't write for everyone and if you are writing for everyone then you're not writing well you're just you know you the the middle path is the most boring view so I think you know take Take the praise when it comes, um, but don't let that get to you. Take the criticism when it comes and don't let that get to you either. You're going to get both. Um, enjoy the praise. Wear the criticism. Um, those people that praise you are geniuses. Those people that criticise you are fuckwits. So <laughs> don't, don't worry about it too much. And, and really, uh, unless, you know, if, if, if you've made, you know, made a fundamental error in something, you know, I think absolutely that's, that, should be, that should be pointed out and you've got, to, um, you've got to address that and own it. But if someone just doesn't like your opinion on something, well, that's fine. They're allowed to, but... In the same, by the same token, you're entitled to, to that opinion. So, um, like I said, the worst thing you can possibly do is not get any kind of response. I'd rather, I'd rather have criticism. I, I, I write a column for the Sunday Mail paper in Adelaide. It's not a wine column. It's a, it's a whatever pops into my head kind of column. Right? Last week I wrote about how I hate the fact that everyone in this country decides when they're half cut at the pub they need to sing Daryl Braithwaite's Horses. Gives me, shits me to tears, okay? And, yeah, you're never supposed to read the comments, but, yeah, I always read the comments and there's people going, yeah, 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 we agree, we agree. And then there's, you know, other people going, yeah, well, you're an idiot. You know, that song's amazing, let people do what they want to do. And you kind of go, yep, yeah, that's a valid opinion as well. But I think like wine writing also, so the stuff I write for the Australian, um, you know, the Australian probably has the most um, feral commentary, online commentary of just about any publication in the country. So it's funny, like you write wine stuff in there and I always find it fascinating, you write wine stuff for general media publications and people are always um, – fascinated and wanting to put the boot into 
what they think is sort of overly florid wine writing and the art of, you know, descriptors. And, you know, there's some guy that would always comment on stuff I'd written for The Australian saying, it's just wine. You know, what's all this, you know, Ironstone and Dutch licorice and fennel seed and cassis and, you know, it's just wine. And I kind of wonder, I wrote a column back one day to say, I get paid by the word. If I just said, here's the 2018 Hill of Grace, it's just wine, I'll get four bucks for that column. I can't live on that. I've got to come up with uh, yeah, a greater insight into that wine just to feed my kids. So... Um, I, I just think that's always kind of hilarious that these these grumpy old Statler and Waldorf sort of types sitting there banging away on their computers commenting on every story online in the Australian and but they, then they having professed all their political views through the opinion pages they then come and find my wine column at the back of the paper and decide they're going to put the put the boot into that as well. So you know I would rather that though than nothing. I think I think if you can engage, um, if you can evoke a reaction, whether it's a good or bad one, it's better to do that than to just be boring. I, I definitely agree with you on that. But it does remind me a little bit of some of the people that call in on like AM radio and give their opinions and you just kind of think, what what have you added to the world by coming in and calling up about that, you know? <laughs> like, exactly. No, exactly. Well, it's like, like every year, like, like the paper will want a you know a review of the the current release Grange, and you can guarantee there'll be someone will comment about. Oh, I remember buying you know this wine back in the sixties when it was five dollars a bottle, and this is outrageous, and you know, Penfolds have lost it, and you go, yeah, sure, that prices go up. You can argue about the price of it as much as you like. That's not really, um, yeah. That's the least interest. That's the least interesting part about it. Yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about how you feel about scoring wines, the hundred point system, pros and cons in your mind. Uh, a, I don't do it. Um, I've never actually published points in print, um, and I, I'm, I kind of that's a, a philosophical thing for me, and. Um, I get it, and yeah, look, I do a lot of show judging. So you know, and I'm, I'm, and even you know, when I'm tasting at home, I'm, I'm sort of making those points in my head so I can distinguish between the things that I'm tasting. But I don't necessarily publish them because I, I well, there's a bunch of things. I think you know, if I give it ninety six points and you give it ninety two points, you know, who yeah, who's right? Who's wrong? You know, and and, and the, those numbers put the idea in people's heads that one of those is you know one of us is right, one of us is, you know hasn't quite got it. Um, and I just don't think that's that doesn't make sense to me. That's not how tasting wine works for me. And if I, you know, if I can't give you a, a, an insight into the wine through my words, then why am I doing the job? If you're just needing numbers for me at the end of the paragraph to really understand the wine, 
then I'm not doing my job properly. And my job is to, through the use of words, give you an understanding of what to expect when you taste that wine. Well, at least what I, I, I saw when I tasted that wine and, and maybe to, you know, that is at least a framework for you to, to have when you go and, you know, if you're thinking about buying that wine yourself. So um, I think there's, you know, I think, and by putting using points, and 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 you know, I have no problem with the people that do, and I absolutely understand why they do, and the process, and um, how for a lot of people that's important. But I, I I'm a. I always think there's two kinds of wine writers too. There's writers who choose wine as their subject, and then there are tasters who want to um, share that expertise with readers. And I think I am, you know, I, I think I'm a you know, pretty good taster, but there are better tasters. Um, you know, I've done a lot of wine show judging, but there are better judges. But I'm a, I think I'm a writer um, with wine as, as my subject. Um, so I think I, I I place greater value on the words, but I think numbers give people an easy out. And then and I don't want you know I hate the idea of you know, spending all this time crafting really nice sentences, knowing that someone's probably just going to skim all over that and go to the number at the end and make use that as their key sort of decision on on whether the wine's any good or not. So that that sort of worries me, and then you know, then there's all those other conversations that are being had around the world at the moment about points creep, and and you know, it's a, it's an issue. You know better than I do that it's an that, that it's an issue. Um, that and you know, there's probably I probably don't have the profile that some other people do because you know, there's no retailer out there using you know my points in all their marketing material, but but so be it. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm comfortable with that. But um, again, each to their own. I, I absolutely you know support everyone who you know goes through the the rigor of applying points to the wines they're tasting, and I know that everyone that does does it with real rigor. So you know, I absolutely respect that, but. It's just not for me. Yeah, and I think so. So many interesting points that you've brought up. I mean, for you know, it's systematic and it's there for a reason. But there's always there's always going to be holes and things that that don't make sense. And I, I agree with you. I think part of the job of of writing about wine is 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 to try and decipher what's in the bottle so that people have a bit more of an awareness of what to expect or perhaps just a bit more insight and. Um, Sometimes it is a shame because people only see numbers rather than really how the the effort you've like you said to put in to try and try and um, share the excitement of whatever's in the bottle and and you know it might be ninety nine points for someone and eighty for somebody else and that's the whole thing about uh, about you know grape juice. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's it. Yeah, put put ten. Yeah, the. 10 or 12 is whatever it is in this country at the moment or making a living or trying to make a living about writing about wine, give us the same wine, tell us to put a point on it, you know. no one, you know, it's not, You're not going to get the same number from everyone. Um, so, you know, the wine isn't different. The tasters are different. 
So, you know, what's what's the number really mean? Very good points. I love it. Nick, what are you most proud of in your career so far? Um, that I'm still doing it, <laughs> I guess. Um, look, I've yeah, that 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 I've got to tell some some really nice stories and and shine light on some people doing really good things and that that to me is um again you know maybe going back to the thing about numbers i think my my strength and my my role in in this weird world is to try and 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 tell some stories about about people doing good things in wine ultimately um, you know, ultimately, I, I love what's in the bottle, but I'm I'm probably even more interested um, in how it got there. And I think there are such great stories out there. So I'm, you know, I'm always really proud to to have maybe you know given someone who um, hadn't previously been exposed, you know, a little you know a little exposure. Um, you know, I wrote I wrote a thing for the Halliday Mag the other day about the semi-professional winemakers of Clare. You know, the, that um, like my kid's headmaster at school who does twelve hours a day, every day at the school, but still manages to work thirty acres of you know, vineyard and crush nearly fifty ton of fruit for a wine label that he sells in school holidays. Um, you know, and then he wouldn't normally get. Um, you know, any kind of coverage like that. But I went, you know, I had that conversation with him one day in the schoolyard and he was talking about you know, how much he was doing. I, went, I mean, that's that's kind of significant. So I, I, I like that, you know, you can you can uncover sort of those um, stories, you know, and, and there's a couple of winemakers I know that, you know, the first press coverage they ever got was something that I had written and... Um, yeah, that opened up all sorts of doors. I know, you know, talking about Taris, again, I remember, and going back to talking about writing about your mates as well, I remember writing up um, one of the early releases of Fugazi for um, a Wines to Watch column that I was writing for the wine magazine at the time. Um, and that, Magazine, you know, a guy called Ronnie Sanders, who's a distributor in the US, uh, he um, had a subscription to the Wine Mag because he had, you know, a few Australian agencies. Uh, read that, went, I've got to find out who this guy is, who names, you know, a wine after, you know, a Washington DC post punk band. I love that band. This guy's got to be interesting. So, you know, he, he chased Taris up and, you know, was Taris's and still is um, Amber's, you know, agent in, in the US. Um, and they've done, they've done great things in, you know, in the US. You know, Coda Barrels has, has been a real hit there. And uh, it's, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not saying that I'm responsible for that, but, you know, Taris and Amber are responsible for that. But just that, that little um, that moment where someone sees something I've written, chases that up, something um, happens for those guys of, of real significance to, to their winemaking journey. I mean, I'm proud of that. And you certainly do that, that's for sure. Um, 
and and you know forge some pretty special relationships because of it and and I think that that's a, a major factor with you is that you have really great relationships with so many um you know people I try you do you do and that's something I agree although there's one there's, there's one winemaker I won't name who threatened to try and um punch me out last year but that's a whole other story <laughs> Well, I can't wait to hear that. You'll have to tell me a little bit more in person about that. Yeah, I'll, 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 tell, you, I'll tell you in person. No, I'm big enough and ugly enough to look after myself. Beer. You need beer, like I just and 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 shitty beer. I know this, you know. I'm not, I'm not alone in this. I just, um, when you know, when I'm when I'm tasting, you know, when you think about wine and 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 flavor so much, sometimes you just need the white noise. Sometimes you just need to switch off, and and shitty beer is the way. I swish off. So, you know, cold, brown, bubbly, almost flavourless. You know, Miller High Life is is the benchmark uh, for me. Um, and my dear friend Chuck Hayward in San Francisco has the greatest welcome to um to San Francisco of anyone. Next time you're there, I'll, I'll, you're hooked up with Chuck. You go to uh, the Beltari's favourite bar, and you have like enormous pints of margarita and tiny little beers, little Miller High Life beers, and it's the perfect um, way to get off the plane. I think you're flying to San Francisco usually about two o'clock in the afternoon. You go straight there, meet Chuck there. It is. Um, I haven't been able to do it for a few years, and I miss it. So I'm going to try and put that on the agenda very, very soon. I drink margarita and Miller High Life with Chuck Hayward in, in San Francisco very soon. Uh, Barolo, uh, that's probably you know, a pretty predictable answer, but I think for me, um, fragrance, you know, the, the seduction of fragrance but the satisfaction of structure that Barolo delivers, uh, you know, is that's what I love. And I, 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 just, I like tannin um, and I like acid and, you know, Barolo can, can – deliver that by the shovel load so well that's probably the bad terminology because it's not shoveled in there it's all, well it's naturally occurring but I, I just I just find you know those wines really um, satisfying intellectually physically um, sensorially um, I just I just I really dig them uh, and for net I thought you might say Fernet actually, but I wasn't. I thought I wonder if it's going to be in the top three, or if it just depends on his mood. <laughs> no, no, no. I just, I do. I, 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 I love it. It's a, um, it just helps redefine everything at the end of an evening. Um, often, you know, there's often regrets at the bottom of a glass of. Annette, but um, that's fine. The regrets I'm happy to wrestle with. <laughs> it's that dark side that we keep talking about resurfacing. <laughs> well, that's it. That's it. Embrace the dark side, Shanti. Embrace the dark side. Oh, I love that. And actually, you know, I've had um, some nice 
moments with Chuck myself. I remember drinking a bottle of Vidello that he was absolutely frothing over in the Hunter after a long day of judging. And he said, let's get a bottle of Vidello. And I was thinking, oh, God, I just need to go to bed. Only that fucking weirdo would be frothing over a bottle of Vidello. <laughs> That was such a funny moment. Oh, <laughs> bless him. Maybe, it's always, it was, maybe it was one of Jim Chatto's because I always, I always called Jim and Jim hates it when I do it. But um, the one year I judged on the, the Hunter show and yeah, Jim was always pretty successful at the show, but this one year the only trophy he got was for the um, the best for Dello. So at every opportunity I've often in print or in public behind a microphone called Jim Chatto Australia's Vidello King and he hates it. <laughs> <laughs> Bless. I love it. <laughs> I can just see his face. Oh, so good. Nick, it's never a dull conversation with you. Thank you so much for making time. My pleasure. And thanks so much for everything and cheers to you. Cheers, mate. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod. And contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.